Hello, my name is Philip Miraton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now today we're going to talk about one of our deepest mysteries, and the subject is time. And our guest, I'm happy to say, will be one of the world's leading theoretical physicists, Lee Smolin, who has just published a book provocatively titled Time Reborn, From the Crisis in Physics to the Future of the Universe. Now Lee Smolin has made influential contributions to the search for a unification of physics. He is a founding faculty member of the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics and a graduate faculty member in the Philosophy Department of the University of Toronto. His previous books include The Trouble with Physics, which I mention a lot in this show because, it's because of its critique of string theory. He also wrote The Life of the Cosmos and Three Roads to Quantum Gravity. Now, before introducing Professor Smolin, I want to make one reference to probably what is the most famous and probably most eloquent description of time, and that is by the early Christian theologian St. Augustine, who said, What then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks me, I do not know. So maybe that is the problem with time. We all know what it is, but when left to try to describe it, we are at a loss for words. Welcome to the show, Lee. It's great having you. Thank you, Philip. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's let's get at this uh, right away. You titled your, your new book, Time Reborn, which I believe just came out about a week ago or so. It's called Time Reborn from the Crisis in Physics to the future of the universe. Now, I'd like to talk about first what the crisis in physics is, because a lot of people may not know that there is a crisis in physics. Let's talk about what this crisis is and what time has to do with it. Very good. There's a crisis in physics because for several decades we have not made substantial progress on our search for the unification of the laws of nature. Einstein began a revolution early in the 20th century with the invention of quantum theory and the discovery of relativity theory. And the task of completing that revolution requires that we unify quantum theory with relativity theory, which is our theory of gravity, space, time, and cosmology. And there are theoretical approaches to that, and some of them at a theoretical level are making quite a lot of progress, but to make definitive progress in science, we need a theory to make experimental predictions that then become verified by real experiments, and that has yet to happen in this fundamental domain. And consequently, um, we can't really claim to have made progress um, since the late 70s or early 80s on this problem, definitive progress, and that's why I speak of a crisis. 
Yeah, and I think I think it's important to to understand for the listener that the really the dream of unifying the laws of physics is something that really occupied Einstein's latest years. And it's not only I don't think maybe Einstein was the first one really to really to raise that as the chief goal of physics, but it really in my mind has become maybe one of the driving forces in modern physics and a lot of people may not realize that at the root of of science uh, of, of the physical world are are the are a theory or two and I don't know if there's more than two that are really incompatible with each other which would be as you point out uh, general relativity and quantum theory right and and so why don't you why don't you explain why why those two are incompatible or, wh- or what makes them incompatible well, so I'm not convinced they are incompatible. Okay. I, I think the question is elsewhere. And um, in my own work in thinking, I've reached the conclusion that the problem is the following. We do physics by a certain method, which, which I can describe to your listeners in a minute. And this method is extremely well adopted to studying small parts of the universe, to studying systems that we model going on in the laboratory or small astrophysical systems, small compared to the universe as a whole, like galaxies or stars or solar systems. And whenever we deal with a part of the universe, we can employ the methods that we have worked so well and were developed by Galileo and Descartes and Newton and refined by Einstein and many others through the centuries. Um, I think the problem is that in the 20th century, starting with work of Einstein early in about 1917, 1918, we conceived of the ambition of extending these theories from theories of parts of the universe to theories of the whole universe, to putting the entire universe inside the model that was described by the theories, inside the system that we're studying. Right. And for various reasons, which I detail in the book, that extension turns out to be illegitimate the power of the method of physics that's developed so far seems to break down when we try to apply it to the universe as a whole. And consequently, I've reached the conclusion that we need a new method and a new approach, um, not to physics in general, but to the task of extending physics to a theory of the whole universe. And uh, because also that time is the key to this, extension of physics to the whole universe. And I think that you, what you did in the book that I'm not sure whether others have done it as clearly, and I think this is important to identify, is you point out this concept of boxes or truncations where quantum mechanics or general relativity are true within sort of a defined uh, box of of facts or of events, and and everything is fine. But the real world is not a bunch of boxes. Right? There's only, I mean, one thing that I I I'm a big advocate that that there needs to be one theory because, very simply put, there's only one universe. And I'm and we'll probably get to the multiverse at some point. But in my mind, we know there's one universe, and therefore it seems to me there should be one theory. It's it's as simple as that. And, and I agree. With 
too. And I, I think that um, I may be making, uh, it may be original to emphasize that all the theories that we have so far are applied to truncations or approximations to small parts of the universe. But this is, but I don't say anything which is not part of the working knowledge and toolkit of all working physicists. Right. Now, so so let's talk about where time fits into the solution, because you obviously spent a lot of time <laughs> going over this, and you're one, you're you you are a leader in the unification of physics. What is what? Where does time fit into the solution? Well, several different places, but one of them, perhaps the most important, is the question of how the laws of physics come to be the laws, why the universe is governed by one set of laws rather than other sets of laws. And this question of why the laws, how the laws are chosen, is not answerable within the standard method of science in which you give the laws as input and you use the laws to describe how a system changes through time. Um, the conclusion that I come to is that if laws are to be explained, and that's a peculiar question at first, but it is a, turns out to be a central question necessary to answer to have a true understanding of the, of the laws themselves is to understand what their origin is, where they come from. Um, the conclusion I come to is that the only scientific route available to answering that question is if the laws themselves are the result of evolution through time. That is, there was a past where the laws must have been different, and there's a historical story about how they came to be what they are. And this conclusion that the laws must evolve in time to be explicable has been reached before um, among great physicists. Feynman, Dirac, John Wheeler expressed it in different ways, and I quote them. And the philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce, who was the inventor of pragma pragmatism, the American tradition called pragmatic philosophy in the late 19th century came to that conclusion. Um, I didn't know it at the time, or it would have saved me a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, I had actually seen that that uh, quote before. I forgot where the the Charles Pierce reference, where he's. It's sort of a odd kind of passage where he said something like, um, "Particles, atoms, pick up habits over time." As if, as if there is some kind of memory imbued in in physical phenomena. Uh, the the point is here that, and I and I I want to say what the, your conclusion here is radical. Although you just cited a lot of leading thinkers, which maybe it's not so radical. But I think it's important for folks to understand that the way most of us are taught science and in particular cosmology, we are taught that the laws of nature are timeless and are true uh, across the universe, right? Like gravity is a classic example, the speed of light. Uh, the, I'm sure the, you know, you know, the strength of the, of, the, of the fundamental forces. So, so what you're saying, if I understand this, is that part of the problem 
of reaching a unified theory is is in believing that the laws of nature are unchanging and timeless. Right? Well, if if we believe that something is unchanging and timeless, it's inexplicable. It's outside of the chain of cause and effect and therefore inexplicable from a scientific perspective. There might be some mystical perspective or theological perspective where you could tell a story about it. But within science, if you want to explain why something is one way rather than otherwise, there has to be a causal explanation, and there has to be an explanation that is checkable by experiment. That is, it has some further consequences or ramifications for something that can be checked experimentally. I also wanted to mention another philosopher, if I if I may, sure, because he had a very direct influence on me through a, a collaboration in the last seven years, Gilberto Mangibera Unger, who is a political and legal philosopher at Harvard, also a Brazilian politician, hmm. and some of the progress, a lot of the progress that I made thinking these things through, came with the stimulation of a collaboration with with Roberto Unger. That's good. And he had independently come to the same view as Charles Peirce, that laws to be explained at the cosmological scale must have a history, must have a law. The break here, first of all, we're, we're going to have to talk about what evolution really means. But, but one, of the, one of the tie-ins I like to make right now is a couple shows ago, uh, we had on, I had on uh, Richard Panic, who wrote a new book uh, on the dark matter called The 4% Universe. And dark matter oh. itself is one of those mysteries uh, where if you apply, if you assume the law of gravity is unchanging, then, it, then, Pete, then, then, then we're out there looking for the missing mass. And, and, and for those who don't, who don't know what dark matter is essentially, it is, it is mass that cosmologists believe must be located in or about galaxies in order to hold the galaxies in their shapes. Now, I've, I've simplified it and maybe, maybe um, distorted it, but basically it's missing mass that scientists believe the law of gravity requires there to be uh, in the heavens. Now, Lee, does, does your, does your uh, um, standpoint of the laws of nature evolving, does it get to what, to the dark matter issue? And unfortunately, it doesn't. Mm. I have nothing terribly original to say about the dark mm. matter issue. Mm. It is a mystery. There are two points of view about it. And by the way, it's a very simple question. You can measure the mass of a galaxy by looking at how the stars move within it under the gravitational force coming from all the matter in the galaxy. And you get a certain value for a given galaxy and indeed a certain notion of how that mass is distributed. And then you can count up all the stars and the gas and the dust that you can see in the galaxy. And that second way of counting up the matter in the galaxy typically gives you a figure about 
one-fifth or one-tenth of the first method of counting up the mass in the galaxy by looking at the effect of its gravitational force. Hmm. So there are two possibilities. Either there is missing matter, matter, in fact, dominating by a factor of five or ten the stars and gas and dust that we can see that is invisible, or we're wrong about what the law of gravity is on the scale of distances involving galaxies and indeed outside of galaxies to clusters of galaxies. Now, the second point of view is more romantic. Yeah. It, it would be great to have a revolution in our understanding of the law of gravity. Um, and there is some clever proposals, particularly by Milgram, um, about what, how the law of gravity might be modified. But it's a kind of, as far as I can tell, so far it's a near miss. It accounts very well for some of the evidence, but doesn't account for all of it. The other perspective is that there simply are kinds of elementary particles which don't give off light, but which predominate in the universe, which we've missed because they don't give off light and they don't interact otherwise very strongly with the matter that we have. And... There are hypotheses about the properties of these unknown dark matter particles, and they've been looked for in different kinds of experimental searches and so far not seen. So both points of view are not definitive. Both of them lack the evidence necessary to definitively establish them. So it's quite a mystery. Um, but... Um, Unfortunately, I have nothing original to say about. Well, well yeah, I, I I raised it because because if the laws of nature evolve, then presumably they would change with time, right? They 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 do change with time, but you can test whether some features of the laws have evolved in the time as far as we can look back mm. in the universe going back to shortly after the Big Bang. And we can look back roughly 8 or 10 billion years um, at light coming from distant galaxies or distant quasars, and we don't see any evidence for the laws of nature to be any different back then. So it doesn't seem to be that the, that the laws of nature or the constants of nature are slowly changing on the scale of billions of years. They must change on a longer scale. An important part of the idea is a hypothesis, therefore, that time goes back before the Big Bang, and that before the Big Bang, there were other eras in the history of the universe where the laws might have been different. So the process goes back, the process of laws evolving goes back before the Big Bang to previous eras of the universe. I see. And this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Lee Smolin, the author of the new book, Time Reborn, From the Crisis in Physics to the Future of the Universe. And we're about to figure out what time is, which is a big challenge. But let's, let's talk about the concept of time for a second here. And how how would you define it from from a from a physics point of view within standard physics time is a parameter 
analogous to a distance and indeed time is analogized to space within which things change, which measures the, so if you do an experiment, you say throw a ball in the air and you measure its motion, maybe these days by making a film of it and then you see that there's a label on each frame of the film which tells you the time at which that film was shot this lets you correlate that label, which is measuring duration, with the position of the ball that you threw in the air. And that is the way that you can then make a record or a graph of space against time to get a picture of how the motion progressed. And that is how time is described in a way which, which is analogous to space. There's a kind of trick that goes on where the real motion as it played out in real time and was experienced by somebody watching it through a succession of their moments becomes frozen in the recording of it. And in the recording of it, there's, there's a weaker notion of time, which is the record, the timestamps. But of course, those records of timestamps don't change themselves in time. So time becomes frozen in the effort to capture motion, or capture records of motion. And what physicists have done since the invention of physics by Galileo and Newton in the 17th century is, I think, to confuse that representation of motion, which is frozen, with the actual process of the motion as it happened in time, and therefore to begin to say things like, well, the distinction between the past, present, and future is an illusion, because it all can be conceived of as frozen. Hmm. Um, that's the standard concept. And in the book, the book has three parts. And in the first part, I explain for the general reader how it is that the concept of time was weakened and eventually removed from the conception of the natural world that physics presents. Um, in the second part of the book, I explain why this is a dead end. It's worked for a long time, but it's a dead end because of our need to expand the notion of physics from small systems to the universe as a whole. And it breaks down in the attempt to apply it to the universe as a whole. And then I propose putting real time, real time in the sense of what is real is real in the present moment, which is one of a succession of moments. I propose to um, found cosmology on, um, on this more present notion of time. And then describe some of the consequences and some avenues to develop the idea and check it experimentally. The concept of time, to me, is incredibly slippery. But, but a, lot of, a lot of folks would think, okay, time is a clock, because a clock keeps track of time. Okay? But, of course, that's just a clock, and you remove all clocks from the world, and we still have what I would call a flow or a movement. I mean, one way to put it would be that 
if there was no time, then everything would happen at once. And, and that, of course, would be an impossible world. But there is this flow in, in what, in, where, where we're moving very simply from one moment to another or from the past to the future, and there's all sorts of philosophical discussions about the, 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 the now and the past and the future and, and all that. But we know that there is a change, a flow going on. And then in physics, there's something called the arrow of time. And why don't you talk? What 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 is the arrow of time, and does that and and does that play into your thinking about unifying the laws of physics? Yes, on the scale at which we live, not the scale of atoms and fundamental particles, but the scale of objects that we can perceive, as well as ourselves. Almost everything that happens in nature is irreversible; that cannot be run backwards. Um, as a glass of spilt milk, um, the birth of a child, um, aging, death, a first kiss, uh, a word said unthinkingly to a good friend which offends them, all these things are not reversible. And in fact, it's so easy to find examples because almost everything that we experience is irreversible. And this irreversibility is what's meant by the arrow of time. Um, the fact that the irreversibility goes uniformly in one direction. Now, this is a mystery for physics because if you look at the scale of motions of atoms and you, you, you think in terms of the reductionist physics, the reductionist picture in which, um, Everything is made out of atoms which have unchanging eternal properties. Those atoms are moving around in an unchanging space with an unchanging geometry according to unchanging laws. Um, those laws, whether given by Newton or Einstein or quantum theory, can be reversed without any difficulty. So if you take a movie, you take any of those irreversible experiences or observations that I described, and consider just a small bit of it, um, just a small bit of the spilled milk, and take a movie of what the atoms are doing, moving around, bouncing back and forth off each other and the glass, um, and then run that movie backwards, you get something that could happen according to the laws of nature as well. And that makes the irreversibility mysterious. And indeed, it has not been satisfactorily explained within physics up to this time. All the explanations within physics, and this is a long story which I'm compressing here. The story is told, I think, in chapters 17 and 18 in the book, um, come down to the conditions in the universe at the very earliest time, just after the Big Bang, being extraordinarily special and improbable. And it's just because those initial conditions were so special that here, 14 billion years later, almost everything that we experience on the macroscopic level is irreversible. That's compressing a long story, but my point is that this long story leads to an improbability. It leads to the assertion that our universe was very special or very improbable. And that's not an explanation. That calls itself for an explanation. Why was 
the initial conditions of the universe? Why were this earliest configuration of the universe so extraordinary and special and unlikely? Now, one of the things that I propose, and this is the subject of, of present work with a collaborator, is that if we take the view that time is real and the distinction between the past, present, and future, and particularly the distinction between the present and future, is objectively real, then we could have a more fundamental level of description, which is irreversible fundamentally. You see, it's because time is unreal in the standard description that there is no uh, distinction between the past and the future. And indeed, to quote Einstein again, he said in a letter to the widow of a friend um, in a kind of condolence for his friend's death that we who understand physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent delusion. Um, and if that's an illusion, then why doesn't the universe run backwards from its present direction? Why aren't the different hours of time going sometimes forward and sometimes backward and so forth? All these things are hard to explain. Well, but if you t- uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think that I think that you, I think that you're 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 doing a good job of getting uh, of making it simple because in my mind. You know, sometimes we tend to overthink things, but it seems like what you're saying is that if we assume that time is real, that nothing is timeless, i.e. that the laws of nature, the laws that control the workings of the universe are are not timeless, but are developed within time, then, they, then everything flows, that everything is flowing forward and therefore that that brings in the concept of evolution is that what you're saying because because i think that one of the topics i want i want to move to right now and this is philip mirton this is conversations beyond science and religion we're talking with lee smolin the author of the new book time reborn and we're about to talk about the mystery of the initial conditions at the big bang and i want to i want to get here because because I think that you have an original twist on this, and I, I just want to set the table a little bit here, and that is a topic that comes up a lot in this show is this concept of initial conditions at the Big Bang. It's something that we tend to overlook uh, from from the common perspective. We all hear about the Big Bang being the creation of the universe or the beginning of it all or whatever, but but in order for that Big Bang to have led to a place that we live in right now with the mathematical harmonies, etc., and, 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 and the ability for life to thrive on planet Earth uh, and, and everything else, the, there had to have been conditions at the present that are unique. And, and that mystery leads to some people believing in things like the multiverse because, the, because those initial conditions are so strange that and nobody wants to say well God did it because then you have to explain God and so some people say well instead of using God as the as the default explanation let's say let's use the multiverse and I understand Lee that you go for neither one of those no Not- sure neither of those is a scientific explanation and in fact in a certain sense they're logically very similar 
in that they rest the explanation for a so far unexplained feature of our universe on something unobservable outside the universe. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I completely agree. Go ahead. A, a nice discussion of this is in Sean Carroll's book, um, which, which is a very lucid discussion, pedagogical discussion of many of these issues. But on this point, I think he's mistaken. The, the, the understanding that, by the way, that the initial conditions had to be very special um, in order to explain the hours of time, for me, goes back to work of Roger Penrose and writings of Roger Penrose in the late 70s. And, um, and I think that Roger was right about this. Now, um, what is the structure of the explanation by the multiverse? So first, maybe I should explain what I mean when I talk about the multiverse. Yeah, that's good. About the hypothesis that our universe is one of a vast or infinite connection collection of universes which exist simultaneously to ours and have no causal connections amongst them. And the claim is made that these universes have randomly distributed properties, randomly chosen laws, and randomly chosen initial conditions. And therefore, just by chance, there will be some universes which have laws similar to ours and initial conditions similar to ours just by chance. Now, the problem with this kind of explanation is that it's, uh, it takes us outside of science because there are not consequences that can be checked by experiment. We can only check by experiment or observation claims about our past, claims about how processes in the past could have caused our universe will cause the property of our universe to be the way that it is. Now, there are claims that people have deduced predictions for experiment from the anthropic principle, which is the, the, the arg kind of argument that we're discussing. Um, and these, unfortunately, are fallacious. And there's several different kinds of fallacies involved in um, the details in the book, and indeed they were detailed in my previous book, um, The Trouble with Physics, and mentioned also in my first book, Life of the Cosmos. But because the point is so important, and there are some friends and colleagues who don't seem to get the point, I, I go into this point again, hopefully more persuasively and eloquently. Yeah, and, and what what's important to understand here about the anthropic principle and again this topic comes up a lot and in many instances it is tied into the multiverse and I'm and the anthropic principle is something like that we we necessarily live in a universe fit for life because we're here and therefore uh, there must be trillions of other universes not fit for life and we just happen to be in the one that is fit for life and and therefore uh, uh, there is one that allows us to exist it's it sort of it, it doesn't say a lot I mean I the the anthropic principle is it's is its own topic but the important point here I think is that many leading cosmologists including people like Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene, uh, 
sort of rely upon the multiverse to explain the design of the universe. And the, Stephen Hawking's latest book, we may recall, is called The Grand Design. And it's not, it's not as some would think, uh, a book about how God designed the universe. It's a book about how the design came from us living in one universe among a landscape of multiverses or a landscape of the multiverse. But you take nope. a different... But but you take a different tact, right? You 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 rely you go to time being real, therefore time has an arrow, and and then and then that leads you to a cosmological evolution. Something interesting has happened with the Antari principle, and, and this has happened before in the history of ideas, that a problem is discovered and it's stated for the first time in a confused way, as if it were the solution to the problem. So there is a puzzle. The puzzle is, why is the universe so hospitable to life? Right. And in that hospitality involves both the conditions and the state of the universe and the laws of nature themselves evolving so much chemical and molecular complexity. And the original people who introduced the anthropic principle for example, Martin Rees, who's a great astrophysicist in Britain, um, amassed a lot of evidence that there were very fine coincidences in some of the different laws or some of the different numbers that specify the laws that had these numbers been chosen differently, these are things like the strengths of the forces and the masses of the fundamental particles, had they been chosen differently, we wouldn't have gotten a universe where life could exist. Right. So that's a puzzle, and they've done us the service of discovering an extremely puzzling question. But I want an answer to this, which is scientific, which means it involves processes happening in the past and is checkable by further experiment. So when I first became aware of this puzzle, which was the late 1980s, I developed a hypothesis, which I call cosmological natural selection, which was a hypothesis about the universe evolving in a way that's analogous to natural selection and allows the argument from biology from natural selection to be applied to this question. Roughly speaking, the universe reproduces itself through a chain of ancestry, and this reproduction happens in which new universes are born within black holes. I'm just going to mention it very briefly. We can expand on any of this if you like. Um, and when this birth of a new universe happens, the numbers that specify the laws of physics change slightly, leading to... Um, something very analogous to the genes mutating um, when uh, an organism gives birth to its progeny, to its children. And this gives us a large collection of universes having existed, but they're related to each other by chains of ancestry, by long chains of causation and ancestry. And within this context, you can explain why it is that the laws of nature have evolved to the present form, or something like the present form, and this even makes 
a few predictions which I published in 1992 and which two of which were testable by real experiments and have been tested a number of times since then by the relevant astrophysical observations. So um, this serves as an example of how making a hypothesis about how the laws of nature may have evolved in the past makes science more testable, more constrained by experiment, not less testable, less constrained by experiment. Well, that's something that, that you put a lot of emphasis on in your, in your writing, is the fact that science must ultimately deal with testable hypotheses, which I think is good. I, I, I want to sort of uh, elaborate upon something that is important here, I think, that's relevant to what you're saying, and that is when you combine the arrow of time or the second law of thermodynamics, this concept that, that things... That, that energy systems move from a higher state of order to a lower state of order, or entropy increases, and you apply that principle to something like the Big Bang, you have a real problem on your hands. And in fact, this topic is discussed by Brian Greene in one of his books. And specifically, folks, what it means is that the Big Bang would have to have been a more ordered state than we currently live in, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it. So what you're saying, Lee, I believe, is that if you go back before the Big Bang, if time has always existed, the conditions at the Big Bang themselves were the result of evolution. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes. The puzzle is both how the laws of nature were selected and so as to lead to a universe with the vast complexity of our present world and why the initial conditions were so special. And my claim is that both questions require a historical explanation if we're going to have an explanation within the context of science. Yeah, that's good. Now, now here's, here's, where, I, here's where I have a disconnect, though, with, with the with the cosmological natural selection. And that is, we know from Darwin that the energy moving things forward, moving natural selection forward, I believe he called the struggle for existence. That's what he said it was. You have life struggling to survive. And a lot of people could could um, identify with that, the striving, the 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 this this energy to live to move on and but what in the cosmological context though what is what is the energy moving things towards order so this is a very important point the i make use in cosmological natural selection of a precise analogy to how natural selection works but it's not by any means a perfect analogy and you're highlighting one of the ways in which there is no analogy. So the important part with the analogy is, is simply the following. If you have differential reproduction, which means that some entities with certain genes reproduce more, either more often or more successfully, than other entities, and after many generations, 
the population is going to be dominated by those that reproduce more because they have more progeny which survive successfully. That doesn't require that there be a struggle for existence. That doesn't require that there be competition. And that's applicable in this cosmological scenario that I mentioned. Um, in this cosmological scenario, there's no competition for resources. It's just a question of which universes can out-reproduce the other universes. And they out-reproduce them by making more black holes because black holes are the place where new universes are born. But there's no competition for resources because space is essentially free. It doesn't take any energy to create a, a large universe or indeed an infinite universe. Um, that's an important point that, that I found um, many people, many listeners and readers are confused about. Yeah, um, yeah, I see. I see. Well, one of the, one of the at the end of at the end of your book, you talk about uh, you know there's a number of mysteries that science maybe will never answer, and I I think you mentioned one of them, the famous question of why there is something rather than nothing, but that is sort of related to this big deep mystery which we're just about at right now, which is what is the energy force that's even moving the the universe or universe is towards a habitable place. I mean, I, but I, there, Philip, there doesn't need to be a teleological explanation. Yeah. The, within cosmological natural selection, the explanation for why the universe is hospitable to life has several parts, but I'll give you one of them. One aspect of being habitable for life is there being a lot of carbon and oxygen around because that's necessary for the chemical complexity of biological molecules. And that turns out to also be necessary so that the universe forms prodigiously many massive stars which becomes supernova, whose remnants lead to black holes, or lead most of the time, lead mostly to black holes. And um, that is explained in cosmological natural selection from the fact that carbon and oxygen play a role in catalyzing the formation of massive stars, and those massive stars are the ones that after they collapse in supernova explosions, what's left may become black holes. So the fact that the universe is filled with plentiful amounts of carbon and oxygen, which is helpful for life, but it's, the fact that it's helpful for life is a byproduct of a different reason, which is that it's helpful for the production of massive stars and black holes. I see. I see. So so at at the end here, Lee, where where do you think physics is heading? I mean, we started off the show by talking about, uh, you know, Einstein's dream of a theory of everything. And we've all read about how Einstein spent his last decades, you know, um, unsuccessfully trying to put it all together. Where, where, do you, where do you think physics is heading in this, in this grand vision of Einstein? I think that physics... Well, first of all, physics is a very diverse subject, and most of physics 
is doing just fine. The part of physics that's aimed with uncovering the fundamental laws of nature and extending our knowledge to the cosmological scale has been stuck on the theoretical side. And I think it has been stuck because of lack of appreciation of the two issues that we've discussed. One of them is the need for new principles and new methods when we extend the reach of science to the universe as a whole. And the second is the role of time. I'm arguing that we need to embrace and develop a notion of time where the present moment is real, where the distinction between the past, present, and future is objective and real, and where laws of nature are not outside of time but are part of the phenomenon of nature which evolves like everything else in time. And in this book, I don't just assert this, the book is a long argument for this conclusion which has many aspects. And I think that the test of these ideas is whether they will lead to new hypotheses which lead to predictions which check them. So I think that it's just a question of making a kind of mid-course correction, throw away some of the metaphysical baggage that's holding us back, having to do with laws of nature being outside of time and eternal or timeless, and adopt a more scientific idea of what a law of nature is, more scientific because um, anything must evolve and change in time as it's to be explained. Well, well, first of all, I, I think that what we've done here is that we've opened up, I think what you've done, Lee, in your book, is open up a sort of a new area, a new perspective on this problem of, of unifying the laws of nature. Now, one thing that, that uh, we've seen, I think, as well, is that our descriptions of time, when we try to put it into words, seem to be as fleeting as time itself. But perhaps, uh, as Lee Smolin argues in his new book, Time Reborn, perhaps if we consider time to be real, we will find ourselves at a new perspective and a new way to understand the world we live in. Uh, Lee, I'd like to thank you for your time. I, I also want to make sure I emphasize that those who want a a new perspective on some of these age-old problems. Pick up a copy of Lee Smolin's new book, Time Reborn, From the Crisis in Physics to the Future of the Universe. Lee, I'd like to thank you for your time. It's been um, eye-opening, and, and I, again, I, I appreciate um, the work you put into, into your book. It should not be underestimated. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Philip. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you for that. Okay, well, well. Uh, once again, this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Mirton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.